It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry, one that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. So if you get dietary energy right, you can keep your costs as low as possible. Uh, but if you get your energy wrong, you can affect performance in a negative way or you can affect net income in a, in a negative way. Swine It podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative sponsors like Elanco's Prevacent, a new PERS Spective. Visit prevacentprrs.us to learn more. NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Every Pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Gestal, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Welcome to Swine Eat Podcast. My name is Marcel Gonçalves, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsor highlight is about Genesis. Genesis is the largest independent producer of high health registered purebred swine in the globe, having over 80% of all registered purebred breeding stock in Canada. The Genesis genetic program uses genomic selection strategies focused on productivity, faster growth, efficiency, high yield, and meat quality. To know more, go to genesis.com. G-E-N-E-S-U-S dot com. Hello, everyone. Today, we have Dr. John Patience from Iowa State University. And the topic is um, one of the most important decisions in swine production, and that is dietary energy level. How are you today, Dr. Patience? I'm fine, Marcio, and, and uh, look forward to chatting with you today. Yes, uh, really appreciate your time. I know you're a very busy uh, man out there. And uh, to get things rolling, uh, John, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. I know every, uh, everyone knows you, but it's always good to get a very, you know, historical perspective of your career and uh, and we go from there. Okay, very good. Well, uh, briefly, I was uh, born and raised on a mixed farm in southern Ontario in Canada. And back in those days, farms were very, very mixed. And so we had dairy cattle and chickens and pigs and crops and so on. But gradually over time, we got rid of the chickens, we got rid of the dairy cows and Every time we got rid of something, we added more pigs. So mm. ultimately, it became a specialty farm, like a lot of Iowa farms, uh, pigs and crops. I got my bachelor's and master's degrees at the University of Guelph. I went to uh, work in extension for three years in Canada. And then I worked in the feed industry for four years. And then I went back and did my PhD at, at Cornell. So I'd been out for about seven and a half years. So... I'm one of those people, Marcio, that believes that you don't have to do your bachelor's, master's, PhD all at once. You can mm. do one or two of those degrees and go back and do a PhD later on if you really want to. And uh, I can tell you I was scared spitless when I first went into class because I'd been away for so long and most of the students were uh, going straight through, but it, it all worked out and I brought with me a lot of industry experience. So I got a lot, of, lot more out of my PhD than I might have otherwise. 
I moved to Saskatoon in 1987 and joined Prairie Swine Center, and I was there for 21 years. Mm-hmm. And for those not familiar, Prairie Swine Center was a an applied research and technology transfer uh, organization um, focused on the, the pig industry, uh, largely in Western Canada, but really on a global basis. And then after 21 years at Prairie Swine Center, I moved down to here to Ames, and I've been on faculty at Iowa State University for uh, for 11 years now. Wow. <laughs> Time flies. It sure does, Marcio. Very nice. Uh, appreciate that. And um, so to get into our topic, so a good portion of our audience are not swine nutritionists. Um, John, can you explain why dietary energy is such an important decision? Yeah, well, it is really important, Marcio, and, and it's important for a number of reasons. First off, uh, dietary energy is really uh, the most ex- expensive component of the diet. So if you get dietary energy right, you can keep your costs as low as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you get your energy wrong, you can affect performance in a negative way or you can affect um, net income in a, in a negative way. So uh, just as an example, to give a, a perspective on that, when we're formulating diets, it's really hard to say, well, you know, if a diet is $200 a ton, this is how much of that cost was energy. But if you formulate a diet, uh, a fully balanced diet, but you just put the energy spec into the computer mm-hmm. uh, and ignore amino acids and vitamins and minerals and everything else, so just meeting that energy spec, mm-hmm. and then you come back after that, and then you add in the amino acids and vitamins and minerals and everything else, just meeting the energy spec represents about 85% of the total final cost of that diet. Oh. Now. Just to be clear, that doesn't mean that energy represents 85% of the cost of the diet because when you meet the energy requirement, you're bringing in some protein and amino acids, of course. Right. But it just shows that setting that energy level can have a big impact on the cost of that diet. So economics is um, is very, very big part of it. The second is that energy affects performance so much. Mm-hmm. Um, too much energy and your carcasses are not good quality and not enough energy and your pigs don't grow very well. And, uh, and so it can affect energy level in the diet, will affect rate of gain, it'll affect feed efficiency, it will return, uh, excuse me, it will rep- uh, affect return over feed cost, return over feed cost per pig place, it can affect carcass yield, milk production in the sow. It affects so many aspects mm-hmm. of production. So we got to make sure we get that right. Um, and so fundamentally, Marcio, if, if somebody is complaining about poor performance in their barn, there can be many causes of that. But one of the th- first things that we would look at would be the energy level of the diet. Very nice. Yes, yeah, such important uh, decision there. And... So we can step back a little bit, uh, doctor, doctor patients, and uh, would you walk us through a brief history of the understanding of dietary energy in swine production over the last uh, several decades? Yeah, yeah, that's a that was an interesting uh, that's an interesting question, Marcio, and and um, and I tried to put it in chronological order, uh, <laughs> but the first step was really to measure energy. How do we measure energy? 
And we do that in an instrument called a calorimeter. And for people not familiar with that, what it is, is it's an instrument in the laboratory that you take a small sample of feed or an ingredient and you put it inside the instrument, which is heavily sealed. And then you put oxygen into the instrument with the feed sample and you ignite it and it burns. It literally explodes and it burns all that sample. And so that tells you how much energy is present. So what we're really saying is that when we measure energy in feed, it's measured in the same way as we would measure the amount of heat that's generated by a bonfire mm. or in a furnace. It's the same way of measuring energy. And that's one of the joys of studying energy. It's a universal language. But that was, that was the first step. We obviously, before we could do anything else with energy, we had to um, have a good understanding of how to measure it, and we had to be able to measure it precisely. And the joy of measuring energy in a calorimeter is we can be very, very precise. The variation in that measurement is, well, in our lab, we'll do a repeat if we're out by more than one and a half percent when we do duplicates. Wow. So uh, it's a very, very precise measurement, which is really important to us. So, so that's step number one. And then step number two was to determine, well, we've, we measure how much energy is in that sample of corn or soybean meal or in a complete diet, but how much of that can be utilized by the pig because it's not all digested. And so now we have to do digestibility studies and we measure how much energy the pig eats. We measure how much energy the pig loses in the feces. And by difference, then we say that's the energy that's digestible to the pig uh, and therefore at least potentially available to be used by the pig for productive purposes. So that's what we call then digestible energy. Well, then along came metabolizable energy where we in in addition to sampling the feces we also sample the urine to see how much energy is lost in the urine and that gives us then metabolizable energy so that was a very important step uh, in terms of um, how much energy in the diet can be utilized by the pig and I'm, I'm going to, uh, to come back to that a little bit in, in a few minutes, but the next real step uh, chronologically was to determine how much energy the pig requires. Mm -hmm. So we started out with how much energy is in the feed, then how much of that energy is available to the pig, is digestible or metabolizable, and now we're at the third step of how much energy does this pig require. And if we, we look at it, Marcio, and break it down to simplify the question, we know that energy is used for maintenance, mm -hmm. sort of to keep the pig's motor running. Um, so that's the heart, the lungs, the kidneys, the intestinal tract, and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, then there's the energy that's required for lean gain, plus the energy that's required to lay down fat in the carcass. So if we add those three together, then that's the amount of energy that's required by the pig to grow. Now, a couple of things that I find kind of interesting about this 
maintenance energy, if we measure how much energy that of the, the energy that the pig consumes, how much actually goes to to run the motor to keep the pig alive on a day-to-day basis, and it's about 25 to 30 percent, which is a fair chunk of energy that that pig consumes. When I ask students um, before they've had a chance to study this, I say, what what percentage of energy do you think is required for maintenance? And typically the guesses will be, you know, 10% or 15%. Mm. The other thing that's kind of interesting is if we look at the amount of lysine that the pig consumes and what proportion of the lysine that the pig consumes that's used for maintenance, it's also about 25 to 30%. So interesting coincidence. And the other number that I find interesting is I had a student measure this a number of years ago that if a pig is sick and we're stimulating that immune system, now in this case, this was a very severe stimulation of the immune system, but it increased maintenance energy requirement by between 25 and 27%. So the cost of disease is very expensive uh, in maintenance terms, combined with the fact that many diseases, not all, but many diseases suppress feed intake. So you have a situation where the pig is needing more energy to maintain itself, but it's eating less energy. And therefore, it's not surprising then that the pig doesn't grow very well because there's a lot less energy available uh, for protein gain and lipid gain. So that's the, the, uh, that kind of gives you a bit of an idea the amount of energy the pig consumes per day that's used for lean gain is only about 20 to 25%. And the rest of it goes to lipid gain. So that's how it kind of uh, breaks down. And now uh, we get to a, a more complicated part of energy. We get to almost to today, Marcio, and that is, is that the energy that the pig consumes We've, we've got to the point where we know how much is digestible. We know how much of that digestible or metabolizable energy the pig needs. But now of the energy that's absorbed, what proportion is actually available for these other purposes? And this is where it gets much more complicated. And this is why we move from metabolizable energy to net energy because some components of the diet are expensive to use and some are not very expensive to use. So, uh, for example, starch, corn has a lot of starch in it and starch is used quite efficiently by the pig. The cost, the metabolic cost, the amount of energy that's needed to convert starch into a form that can be used as a source of energy in the body, um, that cost is very low. So starch is a very efficient source of energy. But if we're talking about protein or fiber, there's a high energetic cost to convert that to a usable form in the body. We call this heat increment Mm -hmm. and fiber and protein are not used very efficiently. So now we have an understanding that even when we measure digestible energy or metabolizable energy, we're missing this final step, and that is the heat increment, and that's why we move to the net energy system. And we'll come back to talk about uh, that a little bit later, 
but maybe right now all we can say is is that um, when we want to set this optimum level of energy in the diet of the pig, if we're um, setting up a new barn or as a consultant we're reviewing a feeding program, there's many factors that influence the level of energy we want to put in this diet. There's the uh, the genetic the pig's genetic capacity for growth, obviously. There's the innate capacity for feed intake, um, and and as we know, some genetics have bigger appetites than others. And so, if a pig has a smaller appetite, we have to make a more concentrated feed, higher in energy, so the pig can meet its energy requirement by eating less feed. But if the pig has a big appetite, then we don't have to feed such a high energy diet. There's the health of the animal, like I, I already related to that, and the effect that can have on health. There's the environment in which the pig lives. So for example, if it's hot, um, um, you know, for raising pigs down there in Tampa, Florida, Marcio, uh, <laughs> we've got to feed a highly, you know, concentrated feed because that pig is not going to uh, eat a lot of feed uh, down there when it's uh, nice and warm for you, but really hot for the pig. Mm -hmm. um, and that gets down to economics where we set that. Then the final thing is, uh, is really comes down to economics and it's the target growth for that barn. And if we're short on space, we're going to feed a higher energy diet if we can afford to, you know, always depends on, on the cost of doing this. But if we're short on space, we're going to want to feed a higher energy diet to help those pigs grow fast so we sell the largest possible carcass when those pigs have to go to market, when we have to empty that barn. But if we're long on space and we can take a week or 10 days or even longer to get those pigs to market, then we can afford to feed a lower energy diet, which is typically going to be a lot cheaper mm -hmm. because growth rate isn't so important. It's not so valuable anymore. And we can feed the pig a lower energy diet and maximize net income that way. So as you can see, there's there's a lot of factors go into setting that energy level. Yes, that's amazing. Uh, thanks for, for going through that, uh, John. Um, as we sit here today, John, what um, are we at the end of the tunnel or is there more things to learn um, about energy? Yeah, I, uh, I, I think the 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 tunnel as you i like that analogy uh, marcio and yeah i think there's still a, a fair bit of tunnel in front of us um because there's there's um there's a number of of things we still have to uh to learn and and one of them uh i think many many nutritionists have switched over to the net energy system um and so a higher proportion of the pigs in the U.S. now are fed diets based on the net energy system as compared to the metabolizable energy or the modified ME system that was used previously. But there's still still some nutritionists who were reluctant to switch to ME, uh, to any, excuse me. Mm -hmm. And that's partly because of the um, lack of confidence in the net energy value that that they feel they have for the ingredients they're using. And of course, as you know, Marcio is a nutritionist. If you don't have confidence in your nutrient specs, 
then it's really, really hard to formulate a diet and have confidence in the results. Because fundamentally, as nutritionists, our overall goal is to feed a diet to achieve a predictable or expected outcome. And if we don't have good net energy values, or if people feel we don't have good net energy values, then they're going to be reluctant to make that move because they're not confident they'll get that predictable performance. So I think we're, we need to have more, uh, more research done to develop those net energy values. It's much more complicated to develop net energy values than ME or modified ME or DE. Um, we can do it through a system called indirect calorimetry. And that's a system, uh, you know, in, in the U.S., we're actually quite behind the Europeans and the, uh, and the Chinese, for, for example, in our access to in, indirect calorimeters. And uh, Dr. Stein at University of Illinois is just firing up his units. Um, mm -hmm. To the best of my knowledge, those will be the only units in the United States being used for swine. And I don't, do you know, Marcio, in, in South America, does anybody use indirect calorimetry? Are you aware? I'm not aware, but I, I don't know for sure. Yeah, I, I haven't heard of any, and I haven't seen anything come out that would suggest they are. But, but anyhow, uh, indirect calorimetry allows you to measure quite precisely the net energy content of ingredients. And, uh, and so uh, we will be getting more data in the future out of uh, Dr. Stein's lab. But you can also do growth titrations. Mm -hmm. And indeed, um, many people developed uh, their ME values and their modified ME values by doing what we would call a titration, where you would um, set a standard diet and you would add your test ingredient in increments to two or three levels at what you believed was the correct energy value. And then you would feed the pig for a period of four weeks or five weeks, long enough to get good performance data, mm -hmm. but not too long because that pig changes carcass composition and that's going to mess up the measurement. <laughs> and if, if, if the feed efficiency stays constant across those three or four levels of ingredient, then you know that your energy value is correct. Right. And if the feed conversion changes uh, as you increase this ingredient, then you know your feed efficiency, your, uh, your excuse me, your energy value is incorrect. And so um, I know there are people who are doing that kind of work to develop energy values, to confirm energy values. And I believe that's, um, that's going to uh, come along. But you know, when you really get down to it, Marcio, we can, if we have a good ME value, we can estimate any fairly well. Mm. And so we can limit the amount of work that needs to be done use doing titrations or indirect calorimetry to come up with these values. We can, we can estimate it reasonably well. So, um, so there's those three ways that we can um, uh, come up with better net energy values. Net energy has the advantage, has two advantages theoretically. The one advantage is very modest, in, in my opinion at least, and that is get a more predictable performance outcome. 
uh, with net energy than with even modified ME. But that advantage is relatively small, you know, a few percentage points. The real advantage of net energy is assigning better economic value to ingredients. Mm -hmm. That's where the significant dollars come in because we tend to overvalue high protein, high fiber ingredients when we use ME or modified ME and we tend to underestimate the value of ingredients that are high in starch and especially those that are high in fat. So that's the advantage of the net energy system. So that's why companies and nutritionists have switched over to NE um, in, in order to improve the economy. But if I may, looking at that tunnel uh, and the light way down at the end, I really do believe that um, we will need to develop models to help us understand how the pig uses energy and get the most predictable outcomes. Because when you think what I referred to before, that um, the amount of energy available to the pig depends whether it's coming from fiber or from protein, uh, or from starch or fat, uh, that's very complex. And you can't really expect a system like even NE to be completely accurate and the ultimate solution down the road will be models. And there's a few of those around the globe, not a lot, um, but that will be the ultimate. I really believe that as we move more and more into what they call precision agriculture, mm -hmm. that's good in order for uh, us to keep up on the energy side of things, that's where we will be headed. And that's a, that's a very complex subject and would take much more time than we have today. But <laughs> Uh, you know, Case DeLonga, before he, he passed away, um, had started a very good model on how energy is utilized by the pig, depending mm -hmm. on where that energy came from. So so that's what I see going down the, the tunnel, uh, Marcio, and, uh, but ultimately it's always defining what is the optimum energy level given the economics of the situation, you know, feed cost versus market price. Very nice. Is there someone working on that model now or it's, it's kind of stopped, uh, John? Yeah, well, it took a big hit mm -hmm. with with cases, with our loss of case. Right. And um, But there are people, yes, that are working on it, but it's in the private side. I'm not aware of anybody on the public side working on that. Okay. Uh, but on the private side, uh, there are people working on that, yes. Okay. Um. As we move along, John, um, how can swine nutritionists figure out the optimum energy to be fed in swine diets? Yes. Well, there's there's two ways, uh, Marcio. Uh, one is what I'll call the empirical method, where you do a titration of energy levels, just like we do titration of amino acids mm -hmm. um, and titration of minerals and so on. And so we would feed different energy levels to the pigs and we would develop then a response curve. We're not going to do breakpoint analysis because there is no breakpoint in energy response. It's not like there is a requirement for energy like there is for lysine or calcium or something like that. It's a response surface, we call it. And so it's a curve. And so as you feed a higher level of energy, uh, the pig will 
grow more efficiently and depending on your starting point may grow uh, faster um, but may not and, and I'll come back to that in just a minute. So you would feed different levels of energy and you would develop this response but always remembering and this is the weakness of the empirical approach that that response surface is only going to be good for those conditions, right? Mm -hmm. That kind of temperature environment, that genetics, that health status. And so realistically, if you're a, a, a company with many, many barns uh, and are spread out geographically and therefore different weather, you're going to want to do develop these curves summer and winter and under different conditions of health to get a good understanding of what that response is. Because if we think for a minute, as we increase the energy level of the diet from, let's say, a low energy to a high energy, as we increase energy, um, that pig is already eating as much as it can of this low energy diet. So as we increase energy, the pig consumes more energy per day and grows faster and grows more efficiently. As energy continues to rise, we might get to the point where the pig now is consuming as much energy as it requires to maximize its growth rate. And when that happens, then further increases in energy won't increase growth rate, but will increase feed efficiency. Hmm. Now, in my experience in commercial conditions, I'd say probably 80, 80 plus percent of the time, increasing energy will increase average daily gain. But it's not 100. Right. Uh, you know, if you have a healthy barn, the pigs are not overcrowded, the temperature's not too hot, and those pigs have a good appetite, they can eat as much energy as they require per day to maximize their growth rate. And increasing energy then isn't going to make them grow any faster, but it will make them grow more efficiently. But there's not a lot of you know, barns like that necessarily, we tend to be more in that range on this curve I just described where energy is limiting the pig's growth rate. So increasing energy will increase growth rate. So that's the empirical approach. And it's pretty straightforward, can be easily done. But the, the other approach is using a, a model, what we call a growth model. So this is different than the energy model that I just talked about. Mm -hmm. This is a model that you plug in the genetics, the, you know, um, the feed intake and, and so on. There's one in the NRC, which actually is not a bad model. We've used it and it was re it reasonably predicted the performance of the pigs. Uh, and, and you use this model and the nice thing about a model is you can apply it under different circumstances, right? right. Mm -hmm. if, if the model can adjust for feed intake, um, then you can adjust for uh, health situations. Um, if you can, uh, if you know the protein deposition in your pigs, then you can plug that into the model, and so on. So you can you can estimate how the pigs would respond to energy, and then you put an economic component into the model to so that you're really you're not really optimizing energy, you're optimizing economics. That that's really what it comes down to. So those are the two ways, uh, Marcio, to define. Uh, the optimum energy level and by far the most common method used in the US is the empirical method But there's more and more modeling going on and I think we're going to see more growth models in the future Very nice 
No, that's great. And, and uh, maybe I'd like to share with the audience as well, John, that model that um, K-State worked on on, the, on top of a meta-analysis, if you call that one, uh, from about three or four years ago on uh, Journal of Animal Science. And, um, and that was an interesting one because it was a meta-analysis of 41 studies. And, and then uh, when we validated that in Canada, it was very, very close as well from a performance standpoint. So, um, so that was an interesting one as well. You bet. Yep. And, and as more and more of that comes out, Marcio, then I think people will become more comfortable with models, right? right. Seeing is believing. And mm -hmm. when the model works, then people will have more confidence and they're so powerful because they can be used under different conditions. Right. Very nice. Um, uh, you know, I've seen some situations, um, John, where the energy was increased, but the amino acid was not, right? So if you can explain to us uh, why it's so important to adjust amino acid levels when changing the energy level of the diet. Right. That, good question. And uh, that's a big oops if we don't adjust the amino acid levels. Right. Um, and so fundamentally, when we're setting up our formulation program, um, ideally what we would do is we would set the energy level and that's, that's an input into the model, uh, or into the formulation program. And then we don't define lysine as a percentage of the diet. We define it as a ratio to energy. What is the lysine to energy ratio? Um, and that, so when we do that, when we change energy, we automatically change lysine. And then we have our ideal protein ratio, so methionine, threonine, tryptophan, valine, and so on, are defined not as percentage of the diet, but as a ratio to lysine. So when we change energy, that changes lysine, and when we change lysine, that changes the other amino acids. And so that, uh, that's really the right way to do it. And that is because if when we change energy, as I described before, if we increase the energy level of the diet, um, that may drive better growth in the pigs, faster growth, and we need lysine to drive that growth. Mm -hmm. Or if it means the pigs are eating less feed because they're already optima optimized in terms of energy intake, well, um, we need to maintain that lysine level so that we don't go deficient in lysine. So that's why it's very, very important to adjust our lysine level to our energy level. Very nice. Um, what are the biggest problems when managing energy sources into the diet? Good, good question. I think the big one, um, and it became much bigger in 2007, 2008, uh, is the variability of ingredients that we're dealing with. Now, corn is, uh, you know, one of the, ideal ingredients that we use in the pig industry worldwide and it doesn't vary very much the energy value of corn you know within experiments that we do even when we've gone out and looked for uh, differing um, uh, uh, qualities of corn we've seen only a three or four percent maximally five percent range in energy 
Hmm. Um, you know, when we had that dr uh, very, very dry year, 2011, I think it was, maybe 12, um, we saw some just terrible corn, small kernels. And you look at it and you think, oh, my God, this stuff is horrible. <laughs> Um, but when we actually did energy values on that corn, they were only about a little over 3% lower if it came off the most drought-stricken land, just over 3% less than the corn that was grown under good uh, cropping conditions. And, uh, and when we've gone into years where it's very, very wet and we've had a lot of broken kernels and so on, that actually was a bigger issue. And there we saw differences of about 5%. But corn doesn't vary nearly as much as byproduct ingredients that we might be using, like DDGs, which can vary in energy tremendously depending on how much energy, excuse me, how much fat is mm -hmm. present. Um, Wheat mids uh, are reasonably consistent, but they also vary. If we were feeding wheat or barley, the variation is double or triple that of corn. Sure. And so corn is, we really consider to be one of the more uniform ingredients and we, we get worse from there. Uh, bakery byproduct is another product that typically can vary quite a bit because it varies so much on what goes into it. So variability is one of the big ones. Um, cost, you know, when, when we set up our formulations and we're selecting ingredients and we get comfortable using those ingredients, we're getting predictable performance, and then the cost structure changes, um, then we're forced to make changes to those diets and that's that changing cost that uh, that causes us grief. And so, for example, we might be feeding 20, 25, even 30% DDGs. Uh, and then the price of DDGs goes up and uh, it no longer prices into the diet and we have to take it out and make all adjustments. And, and so that makes life of a nutritionist uh, much, much more difficult. And then one other thing that we're just learning about now, Marcio, that's going to become more important in the future with the whole antibiotic thing, using less antibiotics in the feed, is we now know that different ingredients that we put into the diet affects the, the gut of the pig. Mm -hmm. It can affect the, the structure of the gut. It can affect the susceptibility of the pig to certain kinds of diseases like uh, cholebacillosis and swine dysentery and other diseases. So in the future, we don't have quite enough information to be very specific yet, but we're, we're getting to that point and we can make some recommendations that we, but we can certainly understand now that selecting ingredients to go into the diet of the pig, not that might be there to supply energy, but it may also be affecting gut health. And this is particularly important in the weanling pig, but can even be important in the grow finished pig as well. Very interesting. Yeah. As we think about that tunnel we were talking about before, I guess that's, that's going to be a big one as well, how the whole microbiome interacts with all that. So very nice. Um, anything else, uh, John, before we move to the three questions we ask every guest? No, I... No, no. I, I think we've I think we've covered the subject pretty well. With hopefully without getting into the weeds too much for your audience, Marcio. No, this was great. 
The truth is, precision swine production is not the future, it is the present. Every Pig is the intelligent pig health platform. It is a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Request a free 20-minute demonstration at www.everypig.co slash swineit. It is time to our famous three. So the three questions, John, that we ask every guest, every episode, the first one is, what is your favorite swine-related book? Thank you, Marcio. And, and I have two books, actually, I'd like to, to include in my list. One is well-known, and that's the NRC 2012. Mm -hmm. I think the, the people that were on that committee did a very, very good job. Obviously, some chapters are better than others, but overall, it's a very good reference book. And the other uh, is a not a very well-known book at all, but it's maybe the best book I ever read, and it's very, very old, um, but that the science hasn't changed a lot, and it's called Comparative Nutrition of Fowl and Swine, and it was written by Ed Moran, who was at the University of Guelph when he wrote that book, but he just retired from Auburn University, but it compares the whole digestive system of the bird and the pig, and I just found it fascinating to understand the pig better by comparing to to the bird. It's wow. just a fascinating book. Very interesting. Yeah, never heard about that one. Yeah. It's not well known, <laughs> unfortunately. Very good. Well, I guess that's one of the goals of the, this question too, is uh, so we all can uh, can keep uh, keep learning with the the vast literature there. the The next one, John, is uh, what's your favorite book in general outside of pig production? Yes. Well, and this one, uh, this was pretty easy. Uh, for me, I read this when I was quite young. I, in fact, I was still a teenager when I read this book, but it had a profound effect on me. It's called No Man Alone, and it was written by uh, a famous neurologist. His name was Wilder Penfield, and he built the first neurological institute in Canada. It's hard to believe here we are in 2019 uh, that within my lifetime, in my early lifetime, there were no specialty. There was no specialty called neurology. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. But anyhow, wow. he built this ne neurological institute in Canada. He became world famous. Uh, he built the neurological institute in the middle of the depression. So he raised millions of dollars when most people didn't have any money. Wow. And he was also a great researcher. He actually developed surgery that helped patients with epilepsy to control that epilepsy better than had ever been done previously. But when you read the book, he takes no credit for himself. Wow. He gives credits to his colleagues. And the book taught me at a very young age that your own personal success, whatever it might be, is not nearly as important as the success of the people around you. Because if the people around you are successful, then you're going to be successful. And, uh, and that was the lesson from this book. And a very, very successful man, uh, but also a very humble man. Wow, very interesting. Um, and I, that's a good uh, link there, John, for the last question, which is, uh, in your opinion, what separates successful swine professionals from those that are not? Well, I, I got five points, uh, Marcia, and I'll go through them very quickly. The first is a commitment to lifelong learning. Um, um, I'm 67. I'll be pretty close to 68 years of age. And I hope I'm still learning. Um, in our world, it's changing so quickly. We have to 
constantly be learning new things. I think successful professionals combine humility and self-confidence. Um, humble people tend to do more listening than speaking. Mm -hmm. And when you're listening rather than speaking, you tend to learn more. But having that self-confidence to be sure of yourself is really important in our world, which is moving so very, very quickly. Interesting. I think the third point is people who work with their clients rather than for their clients. So in other words, it's a partnership. So your client's success is your success and your success is your client's success. I think that builds a strong long-term bond between the uh, people and their customers. Um, at the end of the day, I think the successful professionals always keep an eye on money, on net income and cost of production. Um, a very successful entrepreneur that I knew many years ago told me that money like water never flows uphill. So when you're looking to improve profitability, look for ways to make that money like water flow downhill. In other words, it's got to be logical. It's got to be practical. Hmm. And then finally, uh, I think successful professionals have a great balance between their personal life and their professional life. And my career spans 45 years. And when I look back on my memories, uh, I've had some wonderful memories, Marcio, but my best memories are coaching my daughter and two sons in baseball and hockey. Wow. Those are my best memories. So Very nice. That's, that's profound, John. Appreciate all those uh, insights there uh, from a technical standpoint and also from a personal development standpoint. So I love that. Um, appreciate it, John. It was uh, actually, I think, it was the longest interview I've done. So I, I liked it so much. I'm sorry, uh, I'm a, I get long-winded sometimes. I, I love apologize. it. No, no, no. This is, uh, this is great. Uh, a lot of uh, wisdom there. And... Um, and yeah, appreciate so much uh, your time again, Joe, and um, I will see you soon. Well, thank you, Marcio, for having me. I really have enjoyed it. Hey, guys and girls, thank you so much for being part of our community, as well as thanks for all the great guests that we have had. I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I do. To be part of our email list and get some exclusive materials, go to our website, www.swineit.com. That's swineit.com and subscribe to our email list. Also, we love feedback. So if you use the Apple Podcasts app, please leave us a review. It is much appreciated. We'll talk soon.